Let me invite you to grab your Bibles and to take them out, turn them open to Mark chapter 9, to the passage our friend Crystal read for us a few moments ago. And as you're turning there, um, uh, (laughs) it doesn't happen as much as it should, but on occasion I do find myself at home alone with all three of my kids. Um, And in that moment, I assure you, I find out that the struggle is real. Uh, It's... (laughs) It's legit. It's in those moments when my five-year-old decides to turn our bathroom into an obstacle course full of bubbles, and she's in there doing her thing, and bubbles are taking over the bathroom, leaking out into the hallway, and then my son, he's in his chair eating, trying to eat dinner, but he's more smearing it than eating it, and then he's trying to feed my two-year-old, my nine-month-old, like she's a puppy under the table trying to sneak her food, and that just lures her underneath the table, so she'll crawl under there, and then she gets stuck, and she can't find her way out, and it's just... It's just chaos, and then after all of that, I have to find out some. I have to figure out some way to put them in bed. Uh, how do I get all three of these to bed? And when it when I turn my attention to doing that and trying to get them in their pajamas and move them upstairs, that's when there's just an epic meltdown uh, because that's when they realize mommy's not home, and so they start crying out for mommy and and wanting her, and then I start breaking down, and everybody's melting down. It's it's a it's not a it's not a bad moment, and I start crying out for mommy to come home too. Uh, Bonnie Tyler's song, I Need a Hero, starts playing in the back of my mind as I'm just thinking, Kim, would you please come and reestablish your dominion in this house because it's just chaos right now. And the struggle of those moments just intensified my longing for Kim's return and for my longing for, Kim's, uh, for Kim to come home. And, and I just put that image before you because as we're walking through the Gospel of Mark, and one of the things I love about the Bible, one of the things I love about the Gospel is its realism. I love how real the Bible is. I love how the Bible uh, just deals with life as it is in a fallen world. And one of the things you and I can be sure of, and I'm sure your experiences testify to this, and the Bible certainly affirms it, that the struggle of life in a fallen world is real. Uh, The Bible is very clear about that. And one of the ways that this struggle should serve our lives when life gets hard, when relationships are on the fritz, when our bodies are breaking down, when various troubles and trials are being endured in this life, when that happens, those struggles are intended to intensify and to heighten our longing for the kingdom of God to come. This is where the gospel of Mark began, if you remember, uh, Jesus stepping onto the scene in Galilee and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God, saying the time is fulfilled, repent and believe the gospel, saying God's redemptive reign and his rule, the time for him to set everything right has come. And then Jesus begins navigating his ministry, traveling through Galilee in the known region, uh, bringing his kingdom to bear on various situations, doing all types of things, healing the sick, casting out demons, calming uh, storms and raging waters. We see him forgiving sins. We see him taking life uh, square on. And although, yes, the struggle is real, what we begin to find as we look at Jesus and observe Jesus and listen to Jesus, we begin to... Here, just a note of hope uh, reminding us that glory is coming. And ultimately, that's the move of the gospel. That's the affirmation of the scriptures is that, yes, life in a fallen world, the struggle is real, but glory is coming. This is why we as disciples can live our lives as hopeful realists. This is why you and I don't have to be knocked off balance or off key when things begin going sideways, whether in our lives or in the world that we live in, we we know that the struggle is real. But we also trust that glory is coming, that a better day will be brought in. We're we're looking forward to 
the kingdom of God not only being established in our hearts and in our minds, but for the kingdom of God to be established all throughout the world as, he, as Jesus makes all things new. And so as you step into Mark chapter 9, this is kind of the move because last week we looked at what might be called the cost of discipleship. We saw Jesus uh, communicating and talking about the necessity of his death and why it was necessary for him to suffer and to be rejected and to die and on the third day rise again. But then we also saw how Jesus then took that paradigm, took the form of the cross, and he transferred it to the disciples. And he says, now, my way is your way. Your way is my way. The way of the cross is the way of discipleship. Therefore, you and I, as followers of Jesus, we deny ourselves, we take up our crosses, and we follow Jesus. And that introduces a whole other level of struggle into our lives because following Jesus in a world that's already fallen and hurting and broken and messed up, it just kind of heightens the struggle. It makes this struggle that is real at times can intensify. But as we follow Jesus, we follow him through chapter 8 and on into chapter 9 where Jesus gives his disciples a vision of his glory, helping, him, helping them see that, yes, the struggle is real. The cost of discipleship is high, but glory is coming. Put your hope in, what, in my power, in my sufficiency, in all that I'm going to do as I advance my kingdom and ultimately settle my kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. This is where Jesus goes right after verse 38. When you step into chapter 9, verse 1, he addresses this theme. And look what he says. He says, Jesus, talking to his disciples, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So he's taking up that theme, the kingdom of God, which we've defined as the redemptive reign and rule of Jesus. The fact that Jesus is setting everything right, starting with us, and it's blossoming out into the whole world, into the whole cosmos, if you really want to take everything into consideration, which you should. And so he takes up the theme, the kingdom of God, the, the reign, the redemption of Jesus, his, his kingship, and, and he talks about it coming with power. And so you read that verse and you begin to ask, okay, what is he referring to? What is he getting after when he says that there are some who are not going to taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in this way? And, and it's led many scholars to draw many conclusions. I think the conclusion we should draw is just stay as close to the verse as you can get. You don't have to get crazy with that verse. Just move right into verse 2 and look at what Mark points out in the very next detail. In verse 2, this is what he says, and after six days, Jesus took with him three disciples, Peter and James and John. There are some right there. And he led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. He changed before them. His glory was made known before them. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. So he goes from talking about the kingdom of God and some not dying until they see it come with power. And then it says, verse 2, after six days. And now that's a unique feature in Mark. Mark doesn't typically uh, chronicle the journey of Jesus with, with time, with days like that. So when he does, the few times he does in this gospel, he does it intentionally. And in my view, I believe he does it to call our attention to what's going on. I think he's saying after Jesus said this, six days later, the transfiguration happened. This vision of the glory of Jesus was given to some of the disciples. So this is what I think he's referring to immediately in chapter 9, verse 1. Now, I say immediately, but not necessarily exhaustively. I think there is more to it. I think 
seeing the kingdom of God come in power. Yes, it speaks to this moment, but it, but it also speaks to the moment Christ is crucified, the moment Christ is risen, and I think it also includes Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes and fills up the church and everyone is, is being brought into the kingdom of God, the redemption of Jesus in that moment. I think it includes all of that, but most immediately it's here with the transfiguration where the disciples are giving a glimpse of Jesus' glory. And it's a powerful picture. It's a powerful picture when you see how Jesus was transfigured. He metamorphed before them and his clothes becoming radiant, intensely white. They're, they're, giving a, they're given a picture of the glory of Jesus, one that kind of prefigures and hints at what you and I all will experience and enjoy when the kingdom of God is fully consummated, when it is completed. So much so that if you turn all the way back to Revelation chapter 21, you get to some imagery that John, one of the guys who experiences this moment with Peter and James, he writes the book of Revelation talking about the consummation of the kingdom. And listen to how he describes it just to give you a, a glimpse, a picture of what he experiences and this glory that is emanating from Jesus. Revelation chapter 21, verse 23, it says this, In the city, referring to the new Jerusalem, or the new heavens and new earth, kind of the, the peak place in that world, it says, The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Now, I don't know how this works, but it's pretty spectacular that Jesus' presence, his glory, will radiate in such a way that he will be the lamp. He will provide light in the new heavens and the new earth. Verse 24, by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Everyone will bring their glory to this greater glory that is Jesus and his, his light. That's the, that's the glimpse that the disciples are being given in this moment. And it is a word that they need to hear because they've just been told some of them are going to be persecuted. Some of them are going to die. They're going to be tempted to be ashamed of Jesus. And so what's going to keep them enduring? What's going to keep them pressing on to the end? Well, it's this glimpse of glory. It's knowing that Jesus is going to set all things right. It's knowing the Savior has all power, all dominion, and that his kingdom is, it has come, it's still coming, and one day it will be fully realized in the new heavens and the new earth. And so that provides power, that provides perspective that these guys desperately needed in this moment. And Jesus graciously obliged. But look back at verse 2. It says, after these six days, it says, Jesus takes these guys with him. And, and notice who's with him. It says, Peter, James, and John. These, these guys are commonly referred to all, uh, by, by many students of the New Testament as kind of Jesus' inner circle. Meaning at the most crucial moments in Jesus' ministry... Peter, James, and John were always present. And I love the picture that this gives us of what community within the kingdom should look like. And I think it has bearing on how you and I are to relate to one another here in the church. Because what's interesting is here in this moment, Jesus brings Peter, James, and John into this setting where they can see his glory. This is a peak revelation. This is Jesus on a mountaintop, literally, he, he's on a high in this moment. Things are going well for Jesus in this moment. And he's sharing that with his disciples. He's sharing this glory with them, letting them behold it, letting them see it. And in the process, it's encouraging them, it's comforting them, it's helping them get ready to face the future. So I love that Jesus brings the disciples into this moment. But what I really love about Jesus or 
In addition to that is later on at the end of the gospel, you know where else Jesus brings Peter, James, and John? He brings these same three guys with him into the Garden of Gethsemane. So they're with him when he's on the top, and they are with Jesus when he seems to hit rock bottom, when he's praying and sweating drops of blood, wrestling with the will of his Father, saying, Father, let this cup pass from me, yet not what I will, let your will be done. Praying, would you take this from me, but if it is your will, I'll do it. But he's wrestling, he's struggling, and Peter, James, and John are given the opportunity to be with him in his lowest point. So when you think about the type of community that we want to create within the Hallows Church, what type of kingdom culture we are to be a part of here at the Hallows, it's, it's sharing the type of life with one another so that we're able to celebrate high moments in our lives and we are able to endure low moments with each other. The temptation when you move from the mountain to the Garden of Gethsemane, the temptation in that move is to always to isolate Sometimes we love talking about what's going on well in our lives, and so those conversations are easy. We'll talk about that all day long. But when it comes to vulnerability, when it comes to opening ourselves up and letting people see our struggle, letting people see us wrestle, let us, letting people see us hurt, we're not prone or that doesn't come as naturally to us. But if we're taking our cues from Jesus, which I think we should, then there's something for us in that image Letting people see us when we're doing well. Letting people see us when we're struggling, when we're wounded, when we're hurting. We need community when we're on the top and when we're on the bottom. We always need life together. This is why in the Hallows Church, we encourage those things called DNAs or discipleship, nurture, and accountability groups. These are same gender groups that are informally kind of created of relationships in our body where three to five guys may get together every other week or or so to, to talk about what's going on and to go after the heart with the gospel. And then three to five ladies may get together in a similar rhythm and they'll go after uh, each other's hearts with the gospel. They'll celebrate wins. They'll, they'll weep through wounds. And they, it's a wonderful time for the kingdom culture and the type of community that should exist to be cultivated. And so if you're not connected in those types of relationships, if those types of relationships aren't spawning out of your missional communities, let me encourage you to pray to that end. But then don't just pray to that end. As you pray, move your feet. If you don't have those types of relationships and yet you've never tried to initiate those kinds of relationships, you haven't tried to find them, let me encourage you, move your feet. Move towards the other. Move towards people. Seek it out. Find it. And if you are someone who is approached by another, open yourself up to those relationships. If you find that maybe your relational bandwidth is a little limited because you're stretched through various things... Find someone else for that person to connect with. Find relationships in the body of Christ here in the hallows where you can celebrate God's grace and you can weep and struggle together, where you can experience the full gamut of kingdom living as you deal with the struggles of life, but you deal with them in such a way that says, yes, these struggles are real, but glory is coming. And so we're hopeful realists fleshing that out in the context of community. Now, that's kind of a sidebar, but it's, I think, important to observe in light of what we're about to read. But then the conversation goes on. It says, Peter, James, and John hanging with Jesus high on the mountain. And it says, as they scaled the mountain, Jesus was transfigured. His clothes became white. No one, uh, so much so that it was intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. So they're seeing the glory of Jesus in this mysterious way. And then in verse 4, they're joined by a couple of figures. 
We're told they're joined by two guys, one named Elijah and another named Moses. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, know that Elijah and Moses are very important. Not as important as Jesus, but they're very important. Uh, Moses and Elijah were two prophets that lived long before Jesus. They were two prophets who helped prepare the way for the Messiah's arrival. They were two people who God used in the history of Israel to bring them into a more faithful understanding of who God is and a more fruitful response to what God wants to, wanted to do with the nation of Israel. So these were two important men. Now, when you read through that and, and you see, well, why did Elijah and Moses show up in this moment? There, there's several reasons that scholars and students of the Bible have pointed out as to why that might be. The most common among them is that Elijah and Moses represented the law and the prophets. They represented the totality of the Old Testament. And so when they show up in this moment, they're signaling a transition from the first covenant, sometimes called the old covenant, I prefer first covenant, to the new covenant or the second co covenant, the era in which the gospel is made known, and the person and work of Jesus is fully revealed, God's salvation in the death and resurrection of Jesus. So the Old Testament, Elijah and Moses, everything that was written there, everything that was, every event that occurred in the Old Testament, it was all moving towards this moment for Jesus to show up, and all of a sudden we're able to understand who Jesus is and what Jesus is about. It affects how we read the Old Testament. It affects how we study the Old Testament. All of a sudden, the point of the Old Testament becomes clear. Everything that God was doing in the history of Israel was leading to the moment where King Jesus, the Messiah, would show up and he would do the types of things that he is doing. And so many scholars point that out, saying that Moses and Elijah represented the totality of the Old Testament that is being fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is ushering in a new era, a new day. He's bringing in... Uh, just uh, the kingdom of God in the most um, fantastic sense. But I think there's more to why Elijah and Moses are, appear here. I don't think it's just because they represent the totality of the Old Testament being fulfilled in Jesus. I think another aspect to why they show up in this moment is because these two prophets were two guys who both, at different times in their lives, climbed mountains and met with God. And both times they climbed mountains to have these unique experiences with God. Both times in different ways, but similar. They expressed a longing to see God's glory, a longing to behold God's glory, a longing to enjoy God's glory. I'll give you an example. Hold your spot in Mark chapter 9. Turn back to Exodus chapter 33. You can turn back there or the passage will pop up on the screen. But let me show you this moment in Moses' life where this went down. Exodus chapter 33. There's this moment where Moses has been leading the people of Israel through the wilderness, and they come to Mount Sinai, and this is where God begins to speak, and he begins to shape Israel in some significant ways. And as all this is going down, Moses then goes to the mountain, he meets with God, and this is what he says to God. Listen in chapter 33, verse 18. As Moses is meeting with God at the top of this mountain, Moses said, Please now, show me your glory. Let me see your glory. And glory there means let me know your character. Let me see your, your fullness. Let me know who you are, what you are about. Let me feel the weight of your significance, your importance. Show me your glory. That's his desire. That's his longing. But then look how God responds. It says, and then God said, okay, I, I will make, this is, this, is how, this is what God's glory looks like. He says, I will make all my goodness 
pass before you and will proclaim before you my name. I will proclaim my character to you. So to see God's glory is tied to communication, proclamation, declaration of God's character, of his attributes. And then this is what he says. The Lord, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Now that's pretty good, right? Moses, God, show me your glory. God's saying, okay, I'm going to proclaim my character to you. I'm going to let you see the fact that I'm, I want you to see my goodness. I want you to know my grace. I want you to know my mercy. You'd think Moses would be satisfied with that. That'd be enough. But God keeps going because there's still more. There's more depths to God. There's more layers to God. There's more mystery to God. So this is what he says. He then says, verse 20, you can't, but, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. You cannot see my face because man can't see me and live. In other words, there's a big difference between me and you, Moses. I'm a holy God, and although you are a leader amongst my people, you're still an unholy, per- unholy person. Although you're a prophet, you're still sinful. And so you can't see my face. If you did, you would die. You would disintegrate. You would melt. You would fall apart. You cannot handle the heat of my holiness. You need a filter. There was no sunscreen for Moses in this moment. So God says, if you see my face, you're going to die. But then look what he says next. He says, and then the Lord, he says, okay, so this is what we're going to do. Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes While my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. I'm going to cover you up, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not not be seen. In other words, I'm going to give you a glimpse of my glory, but I'm not going to let you see all of it because you can't handle it. I'm going to pass before you, and when I do, there will be a a lingering trail of beauty, a lingering trail of glory that's going to follow, that will still be trickling past even after I'm gone. So Moses, at the top of the mountain, says, God, show me your glory. That's his longing. That's his desire. God wants to show it to Moses, but he knows in that moment he can't because Moses doesn't have a filter. He can't handle it. Then when you get to Elijah's example, who's also present in Mark chapter 9, Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19 has a similar encounter with God. After he's seen God rain down fire from heaven and he saw God just kind of wipe out all these false prophets who were causing all kinds of problems, you would think Elijah would be riding high, but it says Elijah went into a depression. He's, he, goes, he gets discouraged. He, after this high moment, he goes to a low moment. And so he escapes. He goes up to the mountain to retreat and to ask God for help. And in the process, he's asking for God to show him more of his glory, to let him see more of of God because he needed it. And and when he did, you read in the story, you don't have to turn there, but 1 Corinthians chapter 19, verse 11, it says very similar that the Lord passed by Elijah. He didn't show him his face. He didn't square up to Elijah. He passed by, and, and Elijah just got a glimpse. He had faint whispers of God's glory in that moment. And so you hear Moses and Elijah both expressing a longing for God's glory in the Old Testament. And now they appear in Mark chapter 9 and you're wondering, well, why did they show up? I think it's because here in Mark chapter 9, their request and their longing is finally going to be satisfied. Elijah and Moses show up in this moment because the appropriate filter is now in place. The mediator is there. 
the mediator who is capable and willing of revealing the full measure of God's glory, but revealing it in a way that to where it doesn't have a negative or an adverse effect on the observers or on the onlookers, but it actually affects us in ways that transforms us and changes our lives, actually satisfies our longing to see the glory of God. I think what's happening in Mark chapter 9 is that Elijah and Moses are seeing the glory of God in its fullest form for the first time. And where do they see it? They see it in the person of Jesus. They see it in the uniqueness of Jesus. They see it in who Jesus is as he's pulling back the veil of his glory in some mysterious sense. And his face, according to Matthew's account, is shining like the sun. It's a unique moment, but it's very much reminiscent of what we read in Revelation chapter 21. And it's very much what's affirmed in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, where we're told that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. And the exact imprint of his nature. And Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. In other words, Jesus is showing the glory of God here in a unique and a final sense. So that if any person on the planet wants to see the character of God, the goodness of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the justice of God, the faithfulness of God, the compassion of God, the justice of God, the righteousness of God. If you want to see anything about God, you look to Jesus. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus reveals to us who God is in the fullest sense. So if we want to see his glory, we look to Jesus, but we look at him and we see it in a way that's not like the way Israel Saul Moses, when he came down from the mountain in Exodus chapter 33, we're told that after he met with God on the mountain, when he came down, his face was radiant. It shone. There was some illumination to his countenance. He was changed in some dramatic sense after meeting with God. It's a beautiful picture, but there's a better picture. You see, Moses reflected God's glory in that moment the way the moon reflects the glory of the sun. Jesus reflects the glory of God in Mark 9, not like the moon reflecting the sun, but he reveals the glory of God reflecting it like the sun. His glory is emanating from within. It is tied to his person. This is the type of revelation that should drive us to our knees before the beauty of God in Jesus. It's one of those moments that are, that's intended to elevate his uniqueness, to elevate his incomparableness, that he cannot be compared with any other person, with any other place, with any other thing in the universe. He is utterly unique. And so I think Moses and Elijah are seeing this in this moment, and they represent here this longing from glory that I think is, if you and I just step back for a moment, this is a longing that each and every one of us share. You see, one of the things I believe to be true about each and every one of you and what I believe to be true about each and every person you see walking down Seattle streets is that there is an echo of Eden. There is an echo of Eden in each and every person's soul, in each and every person's heart. There's an echo of Eden where we have faint echoes of deep in our, conscious, our subconscious of this world that was lost, of this glory that we fell from. This echo of Eden that takes the form of this 
longing for glory, of wanting things to be put right, not only outside of us, but things to be put right inside of us. This is why so many of us long for acceptance and affection. This is why so many of us long for purpose and meaning. We, we long for beauty and all. There's something in us that is crying out for glory. We want something that was lost, and we can't quite put words to it. We can't quite figure out why there's such a disconnect between our sense of self and reality or whatever the case may be. And I think what's going on deep down inside is this longing for glory, this echo of Eden that is reverberating in every heart, in every soul. It's basically shards of what was once lost, what, we once, what humanity once found in God, what Adam and Eve once had in God. They have, we have no longer. And these shards express themselves in a myriad of ways. Perhaps the one writer I've read who describes this dynamic better than any other writer I've ever read is C.S. Lewis. I use him a lot for, re- for good reason. I think he's very smart, and I think he's a fascinating writer. Well, he wrote perhaps one of the greatest sermons in the history of the church called The Weight of Glory. And in this sermon, he's unpacking this longing for glory. He's putting words to things that we might have a hard time putting words to. And I want to share his words to you because I think he conveys this longing for glory very, very well. He says, the sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality, is part of our inconsolable secret. And surely, from this point of view, the promise of glory becomes highly relevant to our deepest desire. For glory means good rapport with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. The door on which we have been knocking all our lives will open at last. Then our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. At present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. That someday, God willing, we shall get in. And I think what's going on in Mark chapter 9, what we're intended to see is the way in which God says we can get in. That we can have our longing for glory satisfied. We can be reconciled with that which we fell from in our sin. And that which is, that which is kept from us by our enemy. That which is, is not enjoyed in the world that is, this glory that we're longing for, which is ultimately God, this this glory, the way we can be brought in is found here in the person of Jesus. This is what the transfiguration, that is, this event is designed to communicate, saying, this is the one your your hearts have been crying for. You want Jesus, you just don't realize it. And my prayer for some of you who have yet to find the glory of God in the person of Jesus, to find your soul satisfied, your longings, your cravings cultivated in Jesus. My prayer is that you, like the story of the prodigal son, that you will come to the end of yourself, that you will come to discover the futility of all your other earthly glories, of all your other earthly broken wells that you're drawing life from, that they would fall flat, that they would be exposed as futile, and you will come to see the glory of God in the person of Jesus that your longing would be satisfied by the only one who can ultimately satisfy it. So we're getting a glimpse of this here, and then it says in verse 5, 
He says, and then Peter, this is how he responds. So he sees this going down, and Peter's one of those nervous talkers. He's one of those guys, when he gets nervous, he doesn't know how to be quiet. He doesn't like awkward silence, so he's always filling in the gaps with words, and a lot of times his words aren't very good. Well, here's another example of Peter filling in the blanks with his words. He's not allowing silence to linger, and so he says to Jesus, Rabbi, well, there's... (laughs) Jesus is more than a rabbi. He should know that now when he's seeing God's glory emanating from him. He still calls him rabbi or teacher. And then he says, it is good that we are here. Yeah, that's true. But then look what he says. Let us make three tents, three tabernacles, three temporary shelters, one for you. And then he puts Moses and Elijah on par with Jesus. He says, I'll make one for you, we'll get one for Moses, we'll get one for Elijah. But then notice what Mark says about his, the guy who discipled him, Peter, in verse 6. This is another reason why I love the Bible. It's realism in the sense that it doesn't flatter its heroes. And guys like Peter are shown flaws and all. Verse 6, it says, for he didn't know what to say. He was just talking. He didn't know what he was talking about. Then here's how I'm going to respond to this moment. Let's get, some shelter, let's get three shelters, one for each of you. But Mark's like, yeah, he didn't know what he's talking about. And then he goes on to say this. He says, for they were terrified. There was something about this moment that terrified the disciples. You see, this longing for glory, when it came in this moment, they were actually threatened by it. It's a strange dynamic that when we long for the glory of God and the person of Jesus, and we finally get there and we begin to see it and sense it, there's a sense in which it threatens us. There's a sense in which it terrifies us. There's a sense in which, like Isaiah, and it doesn't look like this in every situation, but there's a sense in which, like Isaiah in the temple of Isaiah chapter 6, where he's in the temple, he looks up, he catches a vision of God, he sees God in all of his holiness and all of his glory, and how does he respond? He responds, woe is me. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king. I'm I'm coming undone. I'm like the wicked witch in the Wizard of Oz. I'm melting here in the presence of God. Woe is me. That's what his that was the immediate conclusion he drew. But what's fascinating about that moment is although Isaiah is saying that about himself, God doesn't agree with him. Instead, in that moment, God responds with a covering. He sends a seraphim from with a burning coal taken from the altar, the place of sacrifice, to touch Isaiah's lips, to heal his heart, to cover him, to qualify him so that he could be in the presence of God and not be terrified, but be in the presence of God and actually enjoy it. But it happened not initially that way. Initially it was, uh, I'm done. And this is what you see, a very similar pattern here in Mark chapter 9, where the disciples are terrified because they realize they're in the presence of God. They are familiar enough with the Old Testament to know that the unfiltered, unmediated glory of God is a dangerous thing. And I think this is why maybe Peter did know what he was talking about when he asks for three tents to be put up. He's threatened by the glory of God, and so he asks, get this, he asks for three tents Same word for tabernacles. If you're familiar with the tabernacle in the Old Testament, the tabernacle was given to the people of Israel to mediate their relationship with this holy and glorious God. The tabernacle was designed to mediate Israel's communion with God so that his glory could exist in the center of the people of Israel. Their lives revolved around the tabernacle. So when Peter, he doesn't get it entirely right, but he's, 
He's cluing in the right direction when he asks for three tents, asks for three tabernacles, because he knows if he's going to continue being in the presence of God, his experience with the glory of God needs to be mediated. It needs to be filtered. It needs sacrifice. It needs a tabernacle. In Exodus chapter 3, the moment Moses comes down from the mountain after seeing this glimpse of God's glory, the very next passage talks about Moses setting up a tent of meeting, setting up the tabern- uh, a version or a precursor to the tabernacle where Israel could commune with God. So when Peter calls for a tent and he calls for a tabernacle, he's saying, look, I've, I see God's glory. I'm threatened by it. I need mediation. And so he calls out for that. And then notice what happens in verse 7. It says, then a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out from the cloud. A cloud encompasses them. They're brought into the glory of God. Yes, they're terrified, but they're still able to be present. God doesn't knock them off the mountaintop. No, his cloud overshadows them in a very similar way to what happened in Mount Sinai, in a very similar way to what happened in Elijah's experience. A cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they, saw, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. So you have this moment. Peter wants three tents, three tabernacles. A cloud covers them, representing the, the, a deeper experience with the presence of God. And then this reaffirming voice comes out saying this, referring to Jesus, not Moses, not Elijah. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. He is the one Elijah and Moses was preparing you for. All those days you studied the Old Testament, they were to get you ready for this one, for Jesus, my beloved son. So he says, this is my beloved son. And because they're with Jesus and because he's present there on the mountain, they're able to press in and not, no longer be threatened by the glory of God there, but actually be embraced in God's glory. This is why I believe in John chapter 1, verse 14, when John is talking about Jesus, when he's finally coming out about this experience, because Jesus does tell them to hold, it, hold on to this experience for a little while, and you can tell people later, but just keep it, under your, keep it close to the chest for a little while. Don't, don't tell anyone until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. After all that, when it was appropriate for John to do so, he would refer to Jesus how in John chapter 1, verse 14. John chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus would say the word, referring to Jesus, Christ took on flesh and he tabernacled among us. You don't have to be threatened. You can be embraced in Jesus. He is the true tabernacle. He is the true temple. He is the one who brings us into the presence of God so that we no longer have to be terrified or threatened, but we can be embraced by God. We can know his affection. We can know his goodness. We can know his grace. We can know his mercy. We can know the full gamut of his character and not be afraid. We actually are embraced by the glory of God in the person of Jesus. This is what goes down here. Then you get into verse 9, and and you're wondering, well, how can this be? And he tells us, clarifies in verse 9, After Jesus was left alone with them, and they are only seeing Jesus, it says, and as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, 
Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And then Jesus begins to teach them. They're listening to Jesus. And he says, well, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written. Now, Matthew's gospel would clarify what that means to us, saying that this Elijah figure that Jesus refers to was none other than John the Baptist. He was the forerunner to the Messiah who came to prepare the way of the Lord. And, and then people treated him as it would go. He, he, was, he was beheaded by Herod. He was killed because of his identification with the Messiah and his, the work he did to prepare the way of the Lord. He suffered for it. And so Jesus here is pointing to that struggle, but he's reminding us again earlier that this struggle uh, is real, but glory is coming. He's he's reminding them that, yes, there's this son of man. He's going to be crucified. He's going to struggle, but he's going to rise from the dead. And when that happens, it's going to change everything. When that happens, he's going to flip the script on everything so that you and I can and be embraced in the glory of God so that our longing for God can be satisfied in a full and final sense. But let me encourage you to think about how this is going to come about. There's a reason why Jesus told them not to tell anyone until after the Son of Man had risen, and the reason for that is, as we've said in the past, is the message would have been incomplete. If the disciples would have come down and just started talking about what they saw on the mountaintop, everyone would have wanted to share that experience They would have wanted that same experience and everybody would have been coming to that mountain to worship God or to meet God. Idols would have been created. Chaos would have reigned. But the disciples are told by Jesus, don't tell anyone until the Son of Man rises because I don't want the message to be incomplete. The message of the glory of God and the person of Jesus becomes most clearly known through the crucifixion and the resurrection of the Son. There are aspects to the glory of God that you and I would know nothing about if Christ was never crucified, if Christ was never risen. So he's saying, don't tell no one until that happens, because that's when the message will come full circle. That's when you'll know what you are to share with everyone. So just think about this. The disciples, and by extension, you and I, we are embraced in the glory of God, not because Jesus was transfigured in this moment. We were embraced and we are embraced in the glory of God because Jesus was disfigured. It was the disfiguration of Jesus that paved the way for you and I to step into the presence of God where he would become the true tabernacle, where he would reveal the glory of God in the fullest sense. So it's not the transfiguration that we bank all of our hope in. It's in the crucifixion. It's in the death and resurrection of Jesus because that is how Jesus reveals God's glory, and that is where our hearts find rest in a restless world. Our longing for glory is satisfied. This is why you and I can live in this world and actually smile. This is why you and I can live in this world and actually love one another and love people and enjoy life. We have access. We have relationship with God. We're embraced in his glory. His presence is with us, so we settle into that, we sink into that, and we live out that dynamic. So yeah, when you read through this passage, you read through the the Gospels, yes, it affirms that the struggle is real, but it also affirms that glory is coming. And it comes to the degree that you and I put our faith in the person and the work of Christ. So let me 
let me kind of team this, uh, hone this down just to a couple of application points to get you to think about before we open up the table. Just in an effort to bring it home as we take last week and this week, kind of put them together and we affirm, yes, the struggle is real, but glory has come in the person of Jesus, that it's still coming and it will, there's coming a day when it will fill out the earth. Well, when the disciples and Jesus are, at the, Jesus are at the top of the mountain, it says they hear a voice come out of the cloud in that moment. And listen to the words again. It says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. So Jesus here is affirmed. And it's an appropriate timing because Jesus is about to turn his attention to Jerusalem. He's going to be crucified. He needs to know that he is God's beloved son. One other time in this gospel, a voice from heaven spoke a very similar word. And that was just before Jesus went into the wilderness where he was tempted So right before he's tempted, he hears, this is my beloved son. Right before he goes to the cross and he endures suffering and rejection and crucifixion, he hears, this is my beloved son. So what is the application for you and I tonight? Well, when we come and we find and we are embraced in the glory of God through a relationship with Jesus, we are united with him. When that happens, all of a sudden, we discover a resource to resist temptation, and we discover a resource to endure suffering. What is that resource? Well, that resource is God's affirmation of you, that when you were in Christ, The words God says of the Son, this is my beloved Son, extends to everyone who is spiritually united in Christ so that you can resist temptation. You can endure suffering knowing that you in Christ are a beloved son and a beloved daughter of God. You have been brought into the glory of God. All that God is for you in Jesus is enough for you all the days of your life. He's enough for you whenever you are tempted to sin. He is enough for you when you are hurting and struggling and suffering and wounded. Jesus is enough. And so the goal of our faith is to listen to Jesus, to look to Jesus. And notice that word, to listen and look to him alone. We we don't need anyone else other than Jesus. He is entirely sufficient to enable and to empower us to resist temptation and to endure suffering. This is where this comes to bear on our lives. We we long for glory. We're threatened by a glory that is unfiltered, that is unmediated, knowing that there's a difference between who God is and who we are. But then God provides a filter. He provides a mediator. He provides the Savior. He provides Jesus, who is the radiance of the glory of God, the full revelation of who God is. He provides Jesus, and we, in faith, are are put into Christ. We are deposited into Christ so that now when God looks at our lives, he sees his son and smiles. And when you and I ask for help when we're tempted, God comes through and he can help us providing ways out, providing us strength to resist. When we feel like the world is crashing down on us and we just don't know if we can take another step, we feel like hope is lost, we cry out to our Father God and he responds to us just as surely as he responded to Jesus all the days of his life as he journeyed through this world and he comes through for us, giving us hope, giving us strength so that yes, it may mean he doesn't remove the cup, it may mean we go to our own crucifixion, but we know though the struggle is real, Glory is coming. 
Though life in a fallen world is hard, we know that life in a fallen world isn't hopeless. This is where our faith is found. This is where the glory of God and the person of Jesus becomes practical in our lives.